Would you turn with me in your Bible to Romans chapter 1? And we're going to talk in this hour about the gospel and biblical counseling. Uh, Of course, you got Bible college in an hour last night where we looked at the gospel. Uh, Randy's talked about it. Brent's talked about it. I've talked about it. But the gospel is really the heart. It really is the center of what we're trying to do in ministry to people. And that's because we believe the gospel is our hope. it's, It's the central message of God's salvation to us, and it of course, is, is the way that we know how to be reconciled to God and, and how to walk with him uh, in a new relationship with him. So uh, we're going to jump into Romans here. And uh, look with me at Romans chapter 1. And I'm just going to start reading in verse 29. And I just want you to follow along. Okay, so Romans 1, 29. And then I'm going to ask you a question about what we just read. So just know that that's coming here in a minute, okay? Romans chapter 1, verse 29. Being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, their gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, And even though they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Now, I realize I just, I just jumped into that without any context, and, and we'll explain in a minute. But, but that list we read there, what does that list represent? What is that? Today's society, okay. What's that? Teenagers, okay, Um, yeah, all right, right, okay, yeah, yeah. When I read that list, you know what I read? Life problems, or sometimes we call them counseling problems, and some are more extreme than others. But you know, deceit, disobeying parents, being unloving. I mean, those are garden variety life problems, right? We we see those in our marriages. We see those in our relationships. And, uh, and, and so the Bible's giving us this list. And so we, we might scratch our head and say, well, where do all those things come from? Why do people do that? And if we back up just a bit into Romans, Paul's going to tell us exactly why people do those sorts of things. And and let's not just say people like out there. I mean, this is like all of us (laughs) struggle with these sorts of things, certainly before Christ and and even uh, though uh, redeemed now for those of us that are believers, uh, we still struggle with indwelling sin, uh, some of those types of things. But, But why do we do that? Where does that come from? Why do people do these things? Well, just back up to where this little paragraph starts back in chapter 1, verse 18. What Paul says as he introduces uh, the gospel to us is that God's wrath is coming because people suppress the truth of God's existence, right? Chapter, nine, or, uh, verse, chapter 1, verse 19, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. So so what Paul is saying here is that God made this creation and the universe testifies to the reality that God's real. You can't watch a good summertime Texas sunset 
and go, that's just an accident. You can't do that. You can't look up at the stars. You can't look at your grandchildren. You, you can't go out and, and see uh, the beauty of creation and conclude this is all one big accident. Paul is saying God gave evidence through creation leading to a verdict that God is real and that he, he, he exists. And in fact, Paul goes a step further and says that that evidence is so overwhelming that God will hold every single human being accountable for God's existence because creation has made that clear to him, to all of them. Okay, so that, that's where he starts out. But notice, what do fallen people do? What do sinful people do with this testimony of creation? Verse 21, for even though they know God, what happens? They don't honor him as God. They don't give thanks, but they become futile in their speculation and their foolish heart was darkened. So fallen, sinful humanity looks at this evidence in creation and we say, eh, I'm going to reject that and I'm going to come up with my own ideas about what life is really about. My own ideas about where we all came from. My own ideas about what we should do in life. And that's what he talks about there with that, those vain sort of speculations. Here's the bottom line. Verse 23, fallen people exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man. Or he says it again in verse 25, fallen people exchanged the truth of God for a lie, follow me here, and they worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. All fallen people, we all come into the world as sinners, right? What we do because of our sin, as we reject the testimony of our Creator God as seen in creation, we come up with our own wild ideas about what life is about, and we ultimately exchange worship of God to worshiping something else. Okay? You, you with me on that? So, so what that means is, well, well and, and look, and that list of counseling problems, life problems we read at the end of the chapter, that is the result of exchanging the truth of God for a lie and worshiping and serving something other than God. So, so, so stay with me, okay? Stay with me. Those lists of life problems, those problems there, are really just symptoms that we're worshiping something else instead of God. Do you see that? So if you're with me, what, that, what, that, what Paul's just done is he says, hey guys, all those life problems you're dealing with, Marriage struggles, struggles with parenting, addiction issues, anger issues, uh, emotional issues. You know what? Those are just symptoms of a much deeper problem. And the much deeper problem is humanity has rejected their creator. We've come up with our own ideas about what life is about, and we're worshiping, serving something else instead of him. Or if you want it more simply, all those life problems are really symptoms of a worship disorder. And that's that humanity has rejected their God. And that's why, it, what we're trying to do in this conference is help you to see that there's a link between the theology that we know in Scripture about Jesus and the Gospel and Him reconciling God to Himself and, and, and all these life problems that we call counseling problems. The link is those life problems are just a symptom of our greatest problem that we need to be reconciled to God. And therefore, the person and work of Jesus, uh, the gospel message, trusting him alone for salvation, and the work that he does in us when that happens, is really the prerequisite, right? It's really the ultimate issue that then allows us then to address all these other life problems. Now, are you with me on that? Does that make sense? And that, that's a great way to talk to people. 
when they're pouring out their heart about some life issue, and you can say, I'm so sorry to hear that. Can I, can I show you in the Bible why that happens? And then what you do is you work from that life problem back into their need for a savior, the need for the gospel, because that's the real issue. Uh, the life problems are just the symptoms, right? So if that makes sense, um, that's why Paul says, if you're still in Romans, just back up to where he starts uh, as he introduces himself to the Romans. He says in verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. That, he, he says the solution up front, right? The, the solution is the gospel, the power of God for salvation. And so if that's true, what I want to talk to you about today is why the gospel has to be central to any pursuit of trying to help people in discipleship or counseling. And I've already hopefully helped you to see a little bit of that because really those life problems are just symptoms of their greatest problem to be reconciled to God. It's a worship disorder and therefore we need the gospel to uh, to help that person to actually be restored in their relationship with God. Okay, so we had some clicker problems last hour. Let's see if this is going to work now, Rob. And it's, uh, it is dead. Okay. You want to switch it or you want to, you know what? Let's just go ahead and, um, can you just advance it manually? Um, a couple more. Keep going. Keep going. Keep going. Keep going. Okay, that'll keep us busy until you can swap it. So, okay, so, so two things. Number one, the gospel is both the heart and the hub of biblical counseling. It's both the heart and the hub, okay? And this is going to review a little bit of what Randy talked about, what I talked about, what Pastor Terry talked about last night, but we're going to uh, go, go in depth a little more into why we need the gospel, okay? The, the first reason we need the gospel when we sit down to try to counsel people is you can't truly disciple a non-disciple. In other words, you can't counsel an unbeliever in, in any direct sense. So, thank you, sir. Did you swap the receiver already? Are we good? Hey, look at that. Thank you. Thank you. Praise God for tech guys, right? Okay. So, so okay, you, you follow me? So, I think you get this. When we say counseling, what we really mean is discipleship. It's intensive discipleship. That's all it is. It's not some professional clinical thing. It's just sitting down in love for another person, opening God's word and ministering to them in the midst of their problem from the scriptures. That's counseling. It's discipleship. So if you've got somebody that hasn't trusted Christ, they're a non-disciple, well, you can't really disciple them until they've made that commitment to trust Jesus. And uh, again, this is review, but just think about this. Think about the absolute bankruptcy, the spiritual bankruptcy of a person that's not a Christian. Okay, They they don't have the Holy Spirit. We'll look at some of these passages in detail, and I may just do a bit of a drive-by also. uh, These are familiar passages probably to most of you. Uh, In Romans chapter 8, verse 9, if you're still in the book of Romans... Paul writes this, however, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. And then he says this, chapter 8, verse 9, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he, the person, does not belong to him, Jesus. So an unbeliever doesn't have the Holy Spirit residing inside of them. Well, that's kind of a problem. 
when it comes to growing and changing. Because what that means is that there's no agency of change. The, 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 the person of God, the third person of the Trinity, who empowers believers to grow and change, well, an unbeliever doesn't have that, uh, access to that to that Holy Spirit in that way. So so that's um, that's a problem. We talked last night, an unbeliever does not have that new heart that uh, Ezekiel talks about in Ezekiel 36, the New Covenant passage. Uh, so the unbeliever remains with this stony, fleshly heart, and, and we know what that's like, right? The the, the sort of spiritual uh, uh, faculties that we have when we come into the world in our fallen state is we have a heart that rejects God and loves self. We have a heart that turns away from the truth of God and worships something else. We just saw that in Romans 1. Uh, our, our heart is, is, is bent toward doing what we want to do and not what God wants us to do. So again, fundamentally, the, the, the components of human beings in a spiritual sense are lacking if Christ hasn't come into their life yet. Uh, number three, an unbeliever remains God's enemy. If you're in Romans, again, just, just turn the page a little bit. Chapter five, th- this is shocking. This is shocking to the Bible belt where many of us live. Some of you have come from far and wide. We're so glad you're here. Some of you are watching online from all around the world. Great. But here in North Texas, sort of the, the remains, the, the remaining vestiges of the Bible Belt, we think, yeah, God just loves everybody and we're all just kind of in the family of God. And, you know, you, you drink sweet tea, you root for the cowboys, you say y'all and let's get after it, right? That's Southern Christianity. And it's quite a shock when we open our Bibles and we read words like this in chapter 5, verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, so much more than we, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. We say, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, Paul. What do you mean? What's this enemy stuff? Uh, if we were cross-reference what he writes in, in Ephesians chapter 2, we were by nature children deserving of God's wrath. We're the enemy of God. We're, we're not in the family of God when we come into the world. Uh, we are the enemy of God when we come into the world. Yes, God's creation, but alienated from Him because of sin. We're, we're on the wrong side of the battle line. And uh, until that changes, a person is not going to grow and change. An unbeliever lacks God's power for change. We saw that last night in Romans chapter 6, just the, the chapter next door there, that uh, the new identity, that new ability, that new growth, the new uh, desire for righteousness, that all of those benefits that we get when a person turns to Christ in repentance and faith, all of those benefits are lacking for the unbeliever. Okay, did you get all those? Okay, so what are we saying? We're saying you cannot truly disciple a non-disciple. You can't counsel an unbeliever because an unbeliever fundamentally lacks the spiritual resources to grow and change in any substantial way. Let's keep on going. An unbeliever lacks the right motivation and desire to change. Again, uh, staying in Romans here, uh, we read these words, and again, it, it shocks us. Chapter 3, verse 11, there, there's none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There's not even any who seek for God. And again, that, 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 that'll challenge conventional wisdom, right? What, what Paul is saying is there are people 
uh, who are very religious, but they're not really truly seeking the God of Scripture. Uh, they, they don't have the right motivation in that. They don't pursue the true God. An unbeliever cannot truly understand the truth. Uh, we won't turn there, but uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, uh, Paul writes to the Corinthians that the natural man, that is the, the unbeliever, uh, uh, does not accept the things of God, for they are foolishness to him, and they cannot be understood because they're spiritually appraised. And maybe you've had this experience. You're talking to an unbeliever, and, and, and the biblical message is as plain as day to you. And, and you do your best unfolding it to them, right, and pleading to them, and they go, oh, okay, what's for lunch? You know, And it's just like they're on with life. And you're like, how can you neglect the fountain of living water? Well, the Bible tells us because they, they have no capacity to understand it. And, of course, Paul doesn't mean like intellectually that they, they can't understand what the grammar is saying and, and the, the, the concept. What he's saying is in their hearts until God works in their life, they're going to reject that message. That They don't take it to heart and say, wow, this is the word of God and, and accept it for what it really is. So they, they don't have that capacity for understanding. Uh, again, Paul writing to the Corinthians talks about an unbeliever is spiritually blind and deaf. Uh, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. So they cannot see the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ, right? They, they, they don't see that. And again, in counseling, when you're ministering, or maybe it's not even counseling, you're, you're pouring your heart out to a family member or a friend, and, and it literally feels like they're not hearing you. Well, you know what? They can't hear you. They're spiritually blind. They're spiritually deaf. And again, until God does that miracle of regeneration, um, you know, it, it is kind of feeling like you're, you're talking to a wall in that way. An unbeliever does not see his need for a savior. Um, we, we see in, in uh, Jesus' parable of um, uh, the, the two men that went up to the temple to pray, right? The, the uh, Pharisee and the tax collector. And uh, the Pharisee, um, representing uh, uh, the heart of legalism and, and Pharisaical religion, and uh, you know he's you know recounting his resume to God, thinking that that somehow makes him right with God. And of course, the the tax collector who was not even willing to lift his eyes to heaven just beat his chest, saying, "Lord, be merciful to me, the sinner." Uh, but unbelievers don't see their need uh, for Christ there. Which is why an unbeliever needs the gospel, and, and sometimes we call that pre-counseling. Uh, p- please do not hear me saying, when I say you can't truly counsel an unbeliever, I'm not saying, like, don't meet with them. Well, you're not a believer yet. Come back when you're a Christian, I'll talk to you. No, no, not, no. Well, no, I, I, sit down and talk to them. Just know that, that your focus is going to be evangelistic until they trust Christ. And, and can I tell you something? We have, most of you know this, in our church right here, we have a free community counseling ministry. We've been going for about 10 years now, and our 12 certified counselors here in our church uh, give of their time every week to open our doors to the community. They come for free counseling. Uh, we've never advertised. We've always had a waiting list because there are lots of hurting people in Hood County. And, and that's why we're doing this, because we need you to help us. Right? We, we, can't, we, can't hurt, we can't address all these hurting people alone. We need other churches, other believers to partner with us. Um, can I just tell you that um, our community counseling ministry has been the single best evangelism strategy that we've ever done? 
because people say, well, talk about Jesus, talk about the gospel. Eh, no, no thanks. You know, um, I'm hurting in my marriage. I'm struggling with an addiction. My uh, adult child just changed genders, think they changed genders, that whole conversation, and they're hurting. And we sit down with them and we say, you know, my name's Keith. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm so, so sorry to hear what's going on in your life. Um, can I encourage you that the God of the universe loves you and cares about your need? And uh, I'd love to sit down with you in the coming weeks and talk to you from his word about how God has answers and help and encouragement for your situation. Can we do that? And uh, very few people will walk away. And at that point, my job and our, what we do here is we try to connect those things then to see that their, their real need is for a relationship with Christ. And that's what gives them the wisdom and the resources then to deal with life in a broken world. Um, so we call it pre, uh, uh, pre-counseling. Most of us call it evangelism. Uh, and that's why uh, the gospel is really the heart of what we're uh, thinking about when we think about biblical counseling. Now, it's not only... Um, actually, before we move on to that, to tell you a quick story. Um, when I was in uh, seminary, um, I had a long drive between where I worked and where the school was. So I was in the car for about two hours. This is this is back in California, L.A. freeways. You know, it's only 40, 40 miles, but it takes you two and a half, three hours. Um, and so I'd often listen to Christian radio. And this is back before podcasts and all that. I'm dating myself a little bit here. But anyway, uh, so I'd listen to Christian radio. And there was this Christian counseling call-in show. And it happened to be on when I was on the freeway, so I'd listen to it. And I'm listening, you know, it's been several weeks, I'm listening to this, and, you know, the guys would get on, caller calls in, say, i got this this counseling problem, and so they'd, they'd explain the situation, and then the, the hosts would explain, okay, you know, here's how we might counsel that. So I'm listening to this for, for weeks and weeks, and, and it dawned on me after, I don't know how many weeks of listening to this, this is a Christian counseling radio radio program. These hosts never asked the caller are you a Christian? The host never asked the caller, this person that you're talking about, are they a Christian? And that just, you know, that just struck me that if we're saying the gospel is, you know, the the power of God for salvation, don't you think that might be a good question to ask them? (laughs) And all of these things that we're telling people to do, if they're not regenerate, are ultimately going to fall flat because they need heart change. They need the resources uh, that only a relationship with Christ can provide. So um, I just thought that was that was really odd and and uh, just really a gospelist presentation. And you know when we open our Bibles, we read that the church is the pillar and support of the truth. That's that's what we are, right? Not not the building, but the body of Christ, the people, the, the believers are the pillar and support of the truth. And you know what that means? We have an incredible mission field right here in our own communities. Because you know what? We've got the answer. We've got the tools, the resources. We've got the relationship. We know what people need. They're desperately looking for in all these other places. And we've got it. And that's, again, that's why we get wound up about this here at our church. This is our job. We've been entrusted with the gospel. If, if we're not going to go help all those hurting people, who is? Right? 
So, so uh, whether or not you become a formal ACBC certified counselor or not, I, I hope you will walk away recognizing that God has entrusted to all of us this precious gospel message and that there's a hurting people around us that are, are struggling in so many ways. They're looking for answers in all the wrong places and you and I have been entrusted with the one thing that will help them. And that is a precious stewardship uh, to take seriously and to go into all the world, but to go into Hood County or wherever you happen to live and, and share the gospel with people. Um, it's, it's amazing. It's amazing if you can connect the gospel to what they're hurting about, they will listen to you. And uh, so I just leave that with you as a challenge uh, as you... Uh, as you go back to your community. Okay, so the gospel is not just the, the heart of what we're trying to do in biblical counseling. It's also the hub. And what I mean by that is all true change and growth is connected to and depends upon the gospel. Okay, and again, some of this is review from last night, but let's, let's just look at some of these things again. Uh, we talked last night in Romans chapter 6, if you're still in Romans, about our union with Christ. Uh, we can cross-reference that with, with other passages like Galatians 2.20, right? I, I have been crucified with Christ, Paul says. Therefore, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Uh, the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. And so that it's that union with Christ. So we, could, we could go over to John 15 where Jesus uses this illustration of a vine and branches to describe the relationship that believers have with him. And, and do you remember what he says? You know, I'm the vine, you are the branches, abide in me, right? Remain in me. And what Jesus is saying is, you need to continue to walk with me and depend on me uh, in your life. And then he says this, and this will challenge your theology. He says this, apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, do we really believe that? That apart from Christ's work, we really can't accomplish anything of consequence? Um, applied to counseling. We, we need to see that any change, any true growth that would honor Christ depends upon a relationship with Him. I, I will have you turn there because we, we just did, um, just kind of waved our hands at it last time. Uh, turn with me back to Ezekiel because this is really quite profound um, when we talk about the, the new covenant, uh, the, the gospel and Old Testament clothing, we might call it, but um, it's called the new, te- te- uh, the new covenant in the Old Testament, uh, and, and that uh, we typically just call it the gospel in the New Testament. But uh, Again, uh, Ezekiel 36, uh, and you know the context. This is in a really dark time of Israel's history. The people of God are rebelling. They're rejecting the prophets. They're rejecting God's law. Uh, God has initiated disciplinary measures. You remember he brought in the the superpower Assyria who took over the northern kingdom and killed a bunch of people, took them back to Assyria, and then the Babylonians took over. And uh, then they came in and destroyed the southern kingdom of Judah and destroyed the the walls and the temple in Jerusalem and took many people back uh, to Babylon. Of course, that's where we read about uh, like Daniel and his friends and and that time. So this is a dark time in Israel's history. And and they're wondering, what is there any hope? Is there any hope for our situation? And uh, Ezekiel turns the corner in chapter 36 and he says these words of hope. He says to them, uh, it, it, the paragraph starts in chapter 
36 verse 22. We'll pick it up in 23. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. And and you can hear the people saying, well, how are you going to do that? Where's the hope going to be? Look at this, verse 24. For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your... What's the next word? Idols. Remember Romans 1? Everything is a worship disorder, right? Everything comes because we've rejected God and we're worshiping other things. Well, this is the plan. God's going to rescue fallen people from their idolatry and save them from their sin and and put them back on a course of worshiping their God alone. That's what the new covenant's going to provide, according to Ezekiel here. Cleansing, uh, cleansing from filthiness, from all the idols. Verse 26, moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit, there's the promise of the Holy Spirit, even in the Old Testament. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. And we say, wow, what provision! I said it last night, nothing short of spiritual heart transplant surgery is going to really help you or that person that you're trying to minister to. We need a new heart. We, we need a, uh, that, that internal renovation. Uh, we already mentioned it there, but Romans 8 expands on the need for the Holy Spirit and a new motivation for holy living. We'll see that in another passage here in a moment. In other words, the gospel is central for both conversion and for sanctification. And that, that's just kind of the bottom line here, right? We, the gospel is the center to know Christ in conversion, and the gospel remains the center in terms of growing as a Christian. So, so let's talk now, with that sort of uh, overview in mind, how do we do that in the practice of biblical counseling? And this may be uh, backyard over the fence counseling where you're just talking to your neighbor. This may be Starbucks counseling where you meet with, for coffee with somebody, with ladies with one of your girlfriends, or uh, would guys, I guess guys could meet at Starbucks. They might meet on the golf course or, you know, somewhere, you know, more spiritual like that, I guess. But, um, <laughs> you know, and you're just kind of talking with your friend. Or this might be a, a formal counseling meeting in your church where there's, uh, you know, more of an agenda, more of a structure. But regardless, uh, how are you going to do that? Well, First of all, you need to assess the counselee's relationship to the gospel. Uh, how are you going to know where they are unless you get to know, well, did, have they trusted Christ, right? Are, are they walking with him? Do they understand the gospel? Uh, in formal counseling, we use counseling intake paperwork, and we'll talk more about this this afternoon when we talk about data gathering, okay? So, so just, just know uh, we're going to teach you how to do that in a formal way. But, you know, if you're sitting at Starbucks or you're, you're teeing it up at the golf course and you, and, and you, you might just say, hey, you know, I, I know you go to this church. Um, uh, how did you come to be a Christian? And just, you know, get their story, right? Talk to them about that and, and ask them questions about what they believe about God and Jesus and, uh, you know, the old... Um, we talk about the old evangelism explosion questions, right? Uh, you know, if you were to die tonight, would you go to heaven? And if God were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven? You know, what would they say? You know, those are good questions to ask somebody. You can ask them to, to give you a brief life history. You know, just, just tell me about, you know, where you grew up and, you know, did you grow up going, growing to church? Were your, were your, were your uh, parents Christians? 
Um, oh, you grew up in the Catholic Church. Okay, what was that like? You know, and, and uh, well, how you go to a Baptist church now, right? Okay, well, how did that how did that change happen? And you're just getting to know people. You're asking questions, getting a bit of their life history. Uh, sometimes we we will supply a spiritual convictions questionnaire. Um, this is copyrighted material by Wayne Mack, but if you just Google it, there are some copyright-free um, things you can find online. It's just a series of questions um, designed to get to know a person's uh, ideas and opinions about spiritual things. You know, who is God? Who is Jesus? What is salvation? Uh, why did Jesus die on the cross? Just basic questions like that. And again, we'll talk more this afternoon about some of these things. Ask them direct questions. Say, do, do you have hope that if you died tonight, you would go to heaven? Do, do you have a certainty about your salvation? Uh, do you even know what that means? Do you know what it means to be saved? Um, are, are, are you in a right relationship with God? Well, I don't know. Okay, well, let's talk about that. So as, you know, you've got to get comfortable asking direct questions. Do it graciously, right? Do it kindly. But, but if we're going to help people, we have to get past the discomfort sometimes of asking people direct questions because until we know where they are, we can't really help them. And then uh, homework, which would be uh, giving them things to read during the week. And again, we'll, we'll talk about homework this afternoon in some of our other sessions. Um, time, right? Sometimes you just need time to see where this person is. I mean, the vast majority of people that come to our community counseling ministry here would say they're Christians. They live in Granbury. Of course they're going to say that, right? Um, and we got some transplants and stuff like that, but most people are... Right, but, but the reality is, it may be that counseling relationship is going to really expose to you and to them, is their walk with the Lord really genuine? And because we live in the Bible Belt, because we live in the midst of cultural Christianity, one of the things our counselors are constantly dealing with here is people that think they're Christians, but they're not. They've made a profession of faith. They might know some facts but their life itself testifies that they don't love Christ and they're not walking with him. And that's what Jesus said, right? How are you going to know if it's legitimate? You know them by their fruits. You know them by the evidence of life. And there's no such thing, according to the Bible, uh, there's no such thing as a real Christian that only exemplifies bad fruit. There's no such thing as a real Christian that's not growing and changing. We saw it last night in Philippians, right? God, for a person who's really a Christian, God gives them both the will to change and the capability of changing. So you meet some guy, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, you know, and he, he doesn't care anything about Jesus, doesn't care anything about church, doesn't read his Bible, doesn't pray, isn't convicted about things in his life. That's not good. Because biblically speaking, that, that's probably somebody who's deceived themselves, maybe made a profession of faith, but is really not a child of God. So we, we've got to give it some time, and sometimes counseling helps us to see that. Um, and again, just, just a footnote here, again, this, this Bible Belt Christianity. Do you know what the lie of cultural Christianity is, of Bible Christianity, a Bible Belt Christianity? It's this, a profession equals conversion. A profession of faith equals conversion. That's just not true. Jesus said in Matthew 7, on the day of judgment, many will say, Lord, Lord. What's that? That's a profession of faith. And Jesus says what? Depart from me. Because you weren't really a Christian, right? So a profession of faith does not equal conversion. Uh, you do need to make a profession of faith if you're going to truly be a, a Christian, but that's that's not all that is entailed in that. So, 
Okay, so so we we, we want to we want to try to get some sort of assessment of the counselee's relationship to the gospel. The second thing we want to do is present the gospel to them. This I love this. This is why I love counseling. People sit down. They want to talk to me about their problem. It's a captive audience for the gospel. It's almost as good as being on an airplane for ten hours with somebody, and you know they're stuck in that seat next to you. They can't leave, right? Um, captive audience. Um, so present the gospel. And, and I would suggest uh, a comprehensive gospel explanation. You, you say, what does that mean? That means what Pastor Terry did last night, the, the Bible college in an hour, you need to touch on a lot of those subjects. Don't assume that everybody has a, a biblical view of who God is. There's all sorts of wrong ideas about God. Explain to them who the biblical God is. Don't assume that they know that God made human beings in his image and likeness for relationship with him. There's all sorts of ideas. You know, we're, we're a product of evolution. You know, we're a product of our biology. Uh, you know, explain anthropology, right? Explain to them who Jesus is. Explain salvation. Explain that they are, um, they are the enemies of God because of sin and liable to God's punishment and judgment. And we need to, uh, we, we need to repent. And, uh, and trust him. And uh, so you, you see the footnote there in your notes. Uh, uh, one of our dear friends of our ministry here, Dr. Stuart Scott, if you go to his website on the 180 Ministries, he's got a whole uh, training resource on the gospel in context. And uh, I, I think it's a couple of dollars. You can buy it and use it. It used to be in a PowerPoint form. I think it's in a video form now. But it just goes over the gospel in a comprehensive way. And, uh, and this is where maybe biblical counseling is unique. Because um, we believe it is the duty of all believers to share the gospel with people. Um, I, I can't I can't imagine a counselor who would say that he or she was a Christian withholding the gospel from somebody who needed it. And, and that's one of the challenges in our culture, especially in professionally counseling circles. Is you know there are a lot of states in the United States where if you're a professional licensed counselor, you're not allowed to do that. So that, that, there's a rub there, right, between what the, what the Bible tells us to do and our ability, our, our, our need to do that, right? No true believer in Jesus Christ would ever withhold the gospel from a hurting person who needs Jesus. So that's our, our duty and privilege to do that. We want to make the gospel clear, right? We, we want to be uh, uh, crystal clear. So like uh, when, when uh, Paul gives his, uh, or excuse me, when Peter gives his um, sermon in Acts chapter 2, they were cut to the heart, right? It was so clear that the audience was convicted. Uh, we we want to be clear enough that people who hear their need for a Savior uh, will be willing to do that. And we also want to share the gospel in a way that leads to a convicting call. Um, Mark begins his gospel as Jesus uh, is baptized and he starts his ministry. What does he say? Repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. So we, we want to present the gospel in a way that's comprehensive. We want to present the gospel in a way that's clear. And we want to present the gospel in a way that's not like, oh, hey, that's nice information. Our gospel presentation should be converging toward a verdict. What will you do? Right? You, you must repent and believe the gospel. You must trust Jesus alone for your salvation. This is not like, oh, I learned something new today. This, this is your life depends on what you do with this gospel. What are you going to do? Um, so so it, it ends in a, a convicting call. It, it calls for a response.
I also think it's, it's important to clarify the components of uh, the gospel with people. And um, I, I just want to share with you very briefly, and this is very, very brief, how I try to make the gospel clear to people. And I do this with people in our community, people in our church, because I find that there's a lot of familiarity, but people just don't understand the gospel. Okay, So, so here, here's my approach, just very quickly. Um, when I talk to people about the gospel, I explain to them that Jesus came to die on the cross to address their four main problems. Four main problems, okay? And um, you, you can draw these or we can... Um, you can get the videos later on, whatever. But uh, what I usually do is I, I draw these on a whiteboard. Just, you know, I, I'm like the pastor of the stick man, right? And just stick figures and whatnot. Not. But when I'm presenting the gospel, I say, you know, Jesus died on the cross because you and I as people have four main problems, okay? The first problem is the problem of wrath. Wrath is God's righteous, good punishment of sin because we have rejected his law and are living in disobedience to it. And the Bible teaches, I usually go to Romans chapter 2 to to demonstrate this. Romans chapter 2 verse 5, because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, people are rejecting the gospel, they're rejecting God, because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath, and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each person according to their deeds. And, and I illustrate that like this. It's like when everybody everybody comes into the world, if they have this invisible cup on their head, right? And the more that they live rejecting God and living in disobedience to his God, disobedience to his law, a little drop of judgment, a little drop of wrath goes into that cup. And the more they live in disobedience to God, the more they are storing up the wrath of God, that's the passage we just read, chapter 2, verse 5 of Romans, until, what does Paul say? Until the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. What happens on the day of judgment? You drink the cup of your own wrath. You drink the cup, well, really, it's, it's God's wrath for your sin, better said. And that's what happens. And um, that's a problem, isn't it? That we're storing up wrath and one day... For all of eternity. This is what the lake of fire is all about. It's, it's bearing the wrath of God for the sin or for the wrath that you and I earned through our disobedience in walking away from God. You say, well, that's a problem, right? Well, what did Jesus do to solve that problem? Well, if you're in Romans 2, just flip over to chapter 3, where Paul introduces us to the gospel and he says in verse 25 that when Jesus died on the cross, verse 25, God displayed him publicly as a propitiation in his blood. You say, what's a propitiation? A, pre- a propitiation is a sponge sacrifice. That's a sponge there, right? What does a sponge do? It absorbs things. And propitiation means a sacrifice that absorbs and thus keeps the wrath of God from falling on you and me. Does that make sense? That's propitiation. So Jesus died on the cross to be a propitiation. He bore the wrath of God in the place of sinners. He he drank the cup. He even talks about that, right? He drinks the cup of God's wrath so that it doesn't fall on believers. Does that make sense? So, so I'm, I, I write this out on the whiteboard, or sometimes I'll show them the PowerPoint in my counseling office, so they get that, and that that's propitiation. So, again, Jesus died on the cross to deal with my four 
uh, problems, right? My four main problems. One of them is wrath. Jesus dies on the cross as a propitiation to absorb the wrath of God so it doesn't fall on me. There's a second problem that we all have, all human beings have, and it is the problem of guilt. Uh, and this, uh, whereas wrath kind of uh, deals with, um, that kind of comes from the, the language of, um, of uh, sort of religious language and, and atonement with uh, sacrifices and whatnot. Now the second problem moves into the language of the courtroom that we are guilty. That's problem number two. We have guilt because we have broken the law of a holy God. And God on judgment day will announce a guilty verdict. But as we know from scripture that Jesus came and lived a perfect righteous life, obeying the law perfectly, and then he died on the cross as a payment for sin. And and, and you know the verse. You know 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You say, what is that all about? Jesus lives a perfect life, then he dies on the cross to pay the penalty for sin, and when you and I trust him through faith alone, right? We trust him, what happens? There's an exchange. Christ's perfect righteousness, his perfect record, gets deposited to my account just as if I lived that perfect life. And my guilt, my sin, and the punishment I deserve gets transferred to Jesus' account, and he pays for it. Does that make sense? We we, we call this substitution, right? Jesus takes my place. So I get his righteousness, my sin gets transferred to him, he pays for it, and so that God can pronounce the sinner who's trusting in Christ, God can pronounce him justified, which means not guilty. Not guilty, but righteous, because he's trusting in Christ. So, again, explaining the gospel, I say, you know, there's four main problems that all people have. They have the problem of wrath. Jesus solves that through propitiation. We have the problem of guilt. Jesus solves that through justification in his work as our substitute, right? There's a third problem, and that's bondage. Uh, this moves into the language of, of slavery at the time uh, of the Bible, that, that uh, masters and slaves, uh, that, was, that was common in that day. And uh, the Bible uses that language to describe the relationship of unbelievers as one of slavery to sin. We read it last night in Romans chapter 6 that before Christ, we are slaves to sin. And it, we can illustrate it like that, right? It's like, you know, if you, if you go home, you take that sin with you, right? If you go to Walmart, you take the sin with you. If you go uh, to your work, you take sin with you, right? That, that's what it means to be a slave of sin. You can't get away from sin. And yet, uh, again, Romans chapter 3, uh, looking at those wonderful uh, verses here, Paul says in chapter 3, verse 24, being justified as a gift, we just talked about that, of his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. What's redemption? Redemption is when God breaks the chain. Redemption is when the bonds that that tie us to sin are broken and we are freed or redeemed. Uh, That's a glorious freedom we have to be able to walk uh, no longer in sin but be able to walk in righteousness. That's called redemption. Okay, so, and then the fourth problem, of course, that uh, when I'm explaining this to people, you know, what's the gospel? Well, Jesus died on the cross to address the four problems that all people have. Guilt, or, or excuse me, wrath, guilt, bondage, right? And then the, thir- the last one is separation. 
And really, this is, this is where all the mechanics of the gospel really filter down to this one main purpose, and that is the gospel serves to bring back in relationship sinners with God. Uh, see, our sin, according to Isaiah, makes a separation between us and God. It, it alienates us from God. And, uh, and yet we understand, uh, again, looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And uh, so that, that's what Jesus comes. He comes to reconcile God and sinners. So that separation uh, is alleviated through his reconciliation. Okay, so, so, so the point of all this, guys, is you don't have to do it like this. Please, please don't hear this is the only way to present the gospel. But you need to become conversant in a way of explaining the gospel to people in a way that they understand. And, and my little whiteboard with my stick figures, and I, I walk through these four little um, pictures to just kind of picture what is propitiation, what is redemption, what is justification, why is that needed? And again, that helps them to understand what it means to be uh, reconciled to God and the purpose of the gospel. Okay, so check out uh, Dr. Scott's material. You can do this um, as well. Uh, by the way, you know where this came from? This little picture came from uh, every every uh, Resurrection Sunday. You know the Passion Week, where we remember the the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, when my kids were little, we made a little board when I was trying to teach this to them. And the little board has the little pictures on it. And then, okay, Jesus came to, to deal with wrath. And then we put the little thing up there that Jesus absorbs the wrath, right? And he came to deal with guilt. And then we put the little thing there where Jesus stands in the courtroom and takes our place. And that, that's where this came from. It was a kid's lesson. But it works for adults too. So, uh, okay. So uh, do that. There, there's, our, there's our pictures there. Now, what, that, what we then want to do is connect the gospel to what we call the presentation problem in counseling, and just just one one brief example on how to do this um, with unbelieving counselees. Uh, many years ago, uh, there was a young man that came to our community counseling ministry. He he was not a part of our church, and um, as I'm getting his story, I, I'm, I'm gathering data. I'm hearing. I, I'm thinking this guy's making this stuff up because I'm listening to him. This is what I'm hearing. He had recently attempted suicide. He was involved in fornicating with his girlfriend. He had a major alcohol issue, recently lost his job, and was understandably depressed by all of this. He had broken friendships with some of his best friends that very week that we met. Um, He had some hostility with his parents that had arisen recently, and they kicked him out of his house. Uh, His girlfriend informed him, I think the day that he came to meet with me, that uh, she was pregnant and was contemplating an abortion. Uh, lost the housing because of the stuff with the parents, and uh, he was on K2, the synthetic drug that was popular in Hood County at that time. And that was all I could get in like 30 or 45 minutes, right? Where would you start? So um, I do what I often do in counseling. I pray with my eyes open. And um, and Lord, help me. I, I mean that. I don't mean that joking. I mean, I, you know... And um, where do you go? And I don't remember the guy's name. I said, you know, um, and I've written all this stuff down on my board, just like my little whiteboard. And I said, look at I said, what, what, what do all those things have in common? And he said, uh, well, they're my problems. I said, well, yeah, they are. But, but what, like, what unites them all together? And he says, I don't know. And I said, all of those problems illustrate that you're a broken person living in a broken world. Would you agree with me that if the world was perfect and if you were a perfect person, you wouldn't have any of those problems? 
And he said, you know, I never thought about it, but yeah, that's true. I said, okay. So here's my question. Why is the world broken? And why are you broken? I don't know. Can I show you what the Bible says about why we are broken people living in a broken world? Well, he's all, he's all ears at that point. You know, show me, right? I took him back to Genesis. We started in Genesis 1. We worked to Genesis 3. You know, we started with creation, then the fall. We worked to redemption. And I helped him to see that really all of those problems are just symptoms of his greatest problem, that he needs a relationship with Jesus. He needs to be reconciled to his God and that all this stuff is just, those are just the symptoms, right? Um, so I laid out the gospel. I gave him a gospel track, prayed with him, sent him to some passages, called him to repent. He came back next week, hadn't trusted Jesus. Well, I'm sorry, you can't come back. We don't counsel unbelievers. No, I didn't tell him that. Um, I said, well, what's going on? He's like, oh man, you're, you're not going to believe what happened this week. So he tells me about the latest crisis. And I listened for a while and I said, can I, can I show you what God has to say about that? Can I show that there's hope for that situation? So I took whatever it was he was talking about. We went to a place in scripture that addressed that, that led him back to his need for Jesus. Same thing. You need, this starts, man, with, with trusting Christ. All these things, you, you can put all sorts of time and energy. It's not until Jesus, right? Goes home, comes back next week. Didn't trust Jesus. I did the same thing. I listened to whatever he was talking about. I found a passage that connected, led him back to the gospel. Over and over and over and over and over again. 13 weeks. And he finally trusted Christ. So, so, so listen to me. What, what biblical counselors and really all of us as believers ought to be able to do is take any life problem and connect it in some way to the gospel and their need for a savior. And we need to do that in Starbucks, on the golf course, at work. We need to come develop this, the skill and ability to do that. Um, if you see that everything is just a symptom, that helps you, right? So, so learn to have those sorts of conversations. Um, well, what about with, with Christians, right? Well, the Bible gives us sort of two buckets, right? That all, all problems in counseling you can put in one of two buckets. They're either problems of suffering or they're problems of sin, right? They're, they're things that people are dealing with because the world's broken, because people have sinned against them. That's suffering. Medical issues, that's suffering. Or they're struggling because they have walked away from God. They're not living in conformity with His Word, and so their sin is causing a problem. So you listen, and as you're listening to what they're going through, you're thinking, that's suffering, that's sin. That's suffering, that's sin. And you're dividing what you're hearing into one of those two buckets. What unites them together is we're broken people living in a broken world, and so you can take any counseling issue of sin or suffering and work right into Genesis, right into the, the story of the Bible that Jesus came to save broken people in this broken world. And so that's how we make those connections, okay? Um, the fall explains why there's sin and why there's suffering. And uh, that's how we then connect to the gospel, okay? So we want to connect unbelieving counselees and believing counselees. Again, that suffering and sin, that's, that's our entry point. And we want to continue to connect the gospel to the counseling process. Even, even once a person trusts Christ or, or you have a believing counselee, the gospel is the heart and the hub, right? So we, we keep the gospel central. Randy said it last night, right? We preach the gospel to ourselves. We continue to minister the gospel as the center of our hope in our counseling. Okay? Let's 
share the gospel with the dark, lost world around us because God has given us the answer. And the vehicle of counseling and life issues gives us a great open door of opportunity with people for the gospel. Lord, thank you. Make us good stewards of this great treasure of the gospel you've entrusted to us and and make us skilled to be able to connect that gospel with hurting people that we, we come across, that they might see their need for Jesus and that you would work in their hearts to help them to believe and trust him. We're grateful, Lord. Make us faithful in this stewardship. In Christ's name, amen.